The Security Conversations podcast is presented by Bishop Fox, a leader in penetration testing, security assessments, and red teaming. Learn more about our services and job openings at bishopfox.com. Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. Uh, my guest today is Zayn Lackey, co-founder and chief security officer at Signal Sciences, and uh, I would say a longtime veteran of, of our industry. How are you this morning, Zayn? How is the RSA preparations going? <laughs> hey, doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Uh, RSA is funny because you can, you can always prep one schedule and then you look back at the end of the week and you realize you've done a completely different schedule because it's always uh, just a, a, a different rodeo once you're out there. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to have a schedule. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I looked at uh, my, one of my buddies, Paul Roberts, is a journalist doing... Uh, uh, some good stuff in the IoT space, and I looked at his RSA calendar. I'm like, dude, how possible? It's just a complete <laughs> exactly. rodeo. I don't know how they do it. Yep. Anyway, let's start by uh, talking a little bit about signal sciences because I think that sets kind of the agenda for uh, you know what we want to talk about. What exactly do you guys do? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, don't give me the PR. Oh, hey, no one jargon. wants to hear yet another vendor pitch. I'm And I'm with you. And I even co-founded the company. And I, I don't want to hear another vendor yeah, pitch. So feel free, <laughs> feel free to dig deeper and explain, like, what do you guys do? Like, where is your sweet spot? Yeah. What are what are companies using you for? Exactly. Uh, let me just give you kind of our, our story as well, because mm-hmm. I think that's what makes the most sense is we come from, from being practitioners ourselves. Uh, if you would have told me years ago that I would end up as a vendor, I probably would have had a lot of four-letter words for you, uh, to be quite honest. Um, but what we saw, especially in our, our last role, so I was previously the, the CISO over at Etsy um, and built and ran the security program there. At the time when it was Etsy on the East Coast and Netflix on the West Coast that were pioneering what we now call this kind of shift to DevOps and cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the short version is basically we saw all of our risk kind of shifting from the infrastructure and the network layer up to the application layer and out to the endpoint side. And we saw some new companies and new approaches really starting on the endpoint side, and we felt good about that. But we really didn't see anything changing on the application side when it came to the vendors and everyone in that space. So we kept trying to, you know, push our vendors to adapt and adjust, and and none of them were doing it. And eventually we got executive buy-in to really just say, look, we recognize that as a business, we're pushing the envelope on DevOps and cloud. And keep in mind, this is all you know eight years ago. Right. right. Um, and so, really said, look, you know, you've got executive buy-in to to build to take some resources and really build something new in this place to help defend the business. And so we built a bunch of things in-house on that. And then the more that we talked to our peers, the more that we saw is not just the kind of hipster internet companies, uh, but really enterprises of all sizes recognizing that you know they're going to be going through this shift to cloud and DevOps as well. Um, so eventually, it finally got through our heads, hey, if we want to help the most number of organizations, uh, it's not just as the conference talks and, and stuff that we were doing in-house at Etsy. It was we need to step out. We need to take these lessons learned and turn them into a packaged, polished product um, and really deliver that so that you know companies can can avoid the same pain that we had to go through. So what uh, the product is, you know, what the marketing folks would call a next gen WAF or a RASP. Uh, we got products in both spaces there. Um, it's really about a more modern way of defending your web applications, your APIs, your microservices, uh, and especially if you've lived through the pain of legacy WAFs, right? The Impervas, the Akamai's, the F5s of the world. Um, we got so fed up with the 
the problems that they introduced there that we built technology that actually works for us as practitioners. Uh, so you, you flash forward to today and the crazy statistic uh, that I get to share that I don't expect anyway, you know, if a vendor told me this, I wouldn't believe it either, but it's actually true. It's that over 95% of our customers are in full blocking mode for all of their production traffic. So with no learning, with no tuning, with none of the, the usual pain and overhead that we've all been used to in that space from the products uh, from kind of the legacy in years past. I got to ask, and I know it's probably a stupid question for you, but for the audience, how do you define DevOps one and how do you define it within the security context? Oh, totally. I think if you ask 10 people that, you're going to get 15 different answers. So I still don't it, know the answer. So. <laughs> you know, I'm with you. I don't know that my answer is right. Uh, but what it means to me, I think from a, uh, from a macro view, is that DevOps is one of the ways in which the way in which we create and deliver software is changing. Um, now, the individual specific meaning of DevOps, it's going to be different for every organization. But the macro view is really that, look, we used to create and deliver software in this waterfall and data center world, and that is going through a generational change right now. We're seeing an increase in multiple orders of magnitude in the speed in which we create and deliver software. And so if the way that we create and deliver it has fundamentally changed, the way that we need to secure it and empower developers as part of it uh, has to fundamentally change as well. It's a communications concept though, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, to, to some organizations, it means kind of the, you know, the cultural change. To others, it has very specific technical meaning. Um, it's really, when you try to pin it down, it means a different thing to every organization. But the one commonality that I see across anyone from enterprise to tiny startup is it means the way, it means that we're changing the way that we create and deliver software. Um. And that incorporates making sure you have an SDL process, making sure the developers are talking to the operations guy, making sure everyone is completely bought into, and again, within the security concept. Uh, right. And it really also means, as, as part of that, that uh, things that were previously siloed bits of data and uh, processes are really kind of merging into one. So you used to have you know, the developers write the code, they throw it over the wall to QA, eventually it reaches the sysop groups who deploy it, and then there's an issue, and then you try to bring everybody back into the fold as part of it. Um, you know, for anyone who's ever lived through an, an outage in the waterfall world, uh, you know exactly what I mean with out of band patches and, and all of that. Um, what it, you know, what DevOps is really pushing on so much of this is that everyone has the means to build and deploy software into production. So the developer that writes the code has the means to actually deploy it into production. And that changes a lot of things, right? It changes the way we think about testing, about security, about performance. Um, yeah, it really, it, it fundamentally changes so much of what we've been used to in software development. And it's, it's generally accepted as uh, within all organizations, big and small, that DevOps is, is, is almost mandatory. Uh, but we still see common mistakes, common basic yeah. security mistakes happening. What is, it, what is the disconnect between what we know is right versus doing it? Is it an, an issue of resources? Is it an issue of skills? Is it an, an issue of culture in a company? You know, like any complex problem, it's a, it's a mix of all of the above. But I think that the um, the change here, to, to your first point of, you know, this is a change that's almost, you know, kind of mandated and coming. The reason for that, which I think is important to go into for a second, is that it allows the business to move faster. And at the end of the day, anything that allows the business to move faster is going to win. So for the, the security organizations, we're like, oh, you know, we're, we're a 
We're some enterprise that uh, we're not, you know, uh, DevOps or cloud is never going to happen here. The reason that it's going to is that it allows the business to move faster. And as someone who lived through that change, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not embarrassed to say when I first went into it, I was terrified of that. I thought it was going to make us way less secure. Um, and it really went against the way that we've built security programs of the last 20 years. Now, the interesting thing, and it, it took me an embarrassingly long time to figure this out, but the interesting thing is coming out the other side, I learned that it can actually make us more secure. And the, when I really dug into that and I really started thinking like, hey, you know, is this a net positive? Is this a net negative? What I came away with is that any software development methodology is going to have vulnerabilities in it. No matter how we build software, it's going to have bugs. Um, and so what we really want, the, the, the methodology that allows us to respond the quickest as part of that is actually the one that can make us safer overall. So the, the waterfall world where we only patch the applications or, or ship updates every 18 months, you know, it's going to have vulnerabilities in it, and we can only fix those every 18 months, which you see as you know, a pen tester all the time, uh, especially back in the day. Um, and then you flash forward to DevOps environments where um, they might be making changes to production every week or every day or every hour. Mm -hmm. And when a critical issue gets discovered, they can say, great, that's just another deploy today. It's not a all hands on deck, total emergency situation like we've all lived through in the past. And your experience at Etsy game was quite unique it's in that that was a startup, very nimble, pushing code almost on a daily basis. Do you, do you, do you get a sense that you had an advantage being in that kind of startup environment versus a, a more of a big company legacy uh, uh, security department that are dealing with God knows what they have to deal with. Uh, <laughs> sure. Give, give me give me your perspective from you know doing and implementing DevOps in 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 a very uh, nimble startup versus yeah. someone trying to do it at a, a, a let's call it just a big company. Yeah, it's it's definitely a different challenge, but a lot of it overlaps. I mean, I I spent years in those sort of environments as a, a pen tester prior to Etsy. I want to talk about to, that with you as well because that, that's oh, yeah, a, a, a big focus. So we'll get to your pen testing life in a little bit. Um, totally. <laughs> uh, but yeah, going into Etsy, um, it definitely it had a mix of legacy systems and it had a mix of really you know new systems that really functioned as kind of a, a startup environment in there it was actually a kind of a surprising mix of both and so i think for any organization you know it's uh, i think the really common thing to say that i found to be true is that it's a journey right you're not going to wake up one night and say we're all devops and everything is magically devops now um for an organization of really any size it's a journey to get to that and right. especially how for do you know that you've arrived how do you know that you've that is a Fantastic question. Um, Have you? Uh, I, do you do you think there's ever a we're fully implemented and we're uh, you know just kind of rolling on all cylinders? Is it? You know, I, I think if there was a common definition of DevOps that you could absolutely pin down, then maybe then you could have make an answer. Right? We've, we've arrived, right? But I think that because it's such a fuzzy definition. Uh, Maybe you can claim that you've arrived and maybe you say, look, it's just it's a continuous journey as part of it. But I think that the I think the the thing that most organizations can kind of squint at it and approximate that that they've gotten at least somewhat there is have you really migrated from what we all really recognized as a waterfall world to a world where teams are able to operate 
multiple orders of magnitude faster than that. So it doesn't, you don't have to, there's not some magic bar that says if you release this many times a day, congrats, you've hit the DevOps bar. It's more, have you kind of done the cultural and technology shift that allows you to release as fast as the business needs to? Uh, and that number might be different for every business. In fact, it, it likely is for a lot of businesses. Uh, when you're talking to customers, CISOs, CIOs, guys who are, you know, uh, just getting their head wrapped around this, what is the biggest uh, hiccup? What is the biggest uh, 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 just nightmare mm. getting it? Is there one thing? Is it a combination of things? Yeah. What should a new, yeah, but- what should a new CISO be like really focusing on as like the hardest part of getting this implemented? So I think the 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 challenge the mistake I made at first uh, anyway is thinking that this was just a technology problem at first that okay as you know our technology is changing okay we need different security technology um, yes it ultimately uh, technology is a piece of that but if you try to just rush in and solve a massive cultural change with simply different technology. Uh, you're you're in for a bad experience as part of that. I'd say the, the number one piece of advice that I had to learn the hard way and that I see organizations that are making this change successfully really focus on up front is recognize that there has to be a culture change along with it. That, that security's culture of functioning as a gatekeeper and a blocker, which made sense in a, in a waterfall world because it kind of aligned with the whole process, that has fundamentally shifted to where security really, and I know I know how cliche this sounds, I almost roll my own eyes as I hear myself <laughs> say it, but security has to become this enabler. And it's, you know, anything's cliche when you distill it down into a sentence, but it doesn't make it untrue, which is that security goes from this blocking mentality to thinking about to me, how I really distill it is security's number one role becomes how do we make the rest of the organization security self-sufficient? And when you start to think about it through that lens, culture starts to fall out of that, technology starts to fall out of that, tooling and techniques and all of that start to fall out of it. But that's the lens to, to actually think about it through. Right. But it's also an, an, an operational issue. One of the things that keep popping, oh, yeah. keep, keep popping up on my podcast as I have these conversations, it's pretty new and I'm trying to, you know, include as many a variety of security folks to come just chit chat with me about security stuff is one thing that keeps popping up it's almost like a trend is how does a security department uh, a security engineer uh, director of security a CISO a CIO whatever he is how does he Mm -hmm. compartmentalize between uh, blocking and tackling and all the everyday stuff, you know, making sure, like right now, making sure Drupal is patched should be like your number one priority and you shouldn't be chasing after whatever the latest sexy zero day is, although you can't ignore it. And striking that balance between, operationally striking that balance between what is important today, what can be mm-hmm. pushed off. Uh, you come from a pen testing background. You were at, at ISEC in the early 2000s, I suspect. You, you've been uh, uh, meddling in this pen testing world before. <laughs> how 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 do you advise uh, folks when you're talking to them about making sure you're paying attention to the right things today um, and and, yeah. and and assigning resources? It just seems to be something that keeps popping up that we haven't quite gotten right. Oh, absolutely, because it, it's absolutely a challenging problem. Um, you know, the the thing that I think there is, it's so easy 
to get your attention pulled into the latest fire and to kind of see the trees and miss the forest. And I think the, the real challenge for a lot of this is, look, I mean, in, in security, in any sort of enterprise, uh, there's no shortage of challenges and problems, right? And things that are on fire for, for a CISO or a director of security or a security engineer or, or anyone there, uh, whatever he or she is. Right? right. And at the same um, time, security but, has to be this enabler. If, if, if exactly. we can continue so, with the cliche, how do, you, how do you make sure it's humming along smoothly while putting out fires and trying to figure out what 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 can be patched next month uh, it's just it just seems to be like a a, a clutter of every day like why would anyone want to be a CISO it's just something that fascinates me <laughs> well that's certainly a separate question uh, and I'm sure one that uh, maybe the entire CISO uh, career path is actually driven by the whiskey industry who knows it, it might make sense there uh, but I what I was going to on this is you've got to really focus on what are the things that you can direct your efforts to that start to enable the rest of the business to own their own security. You've got to think about these things that it's the only way we scale as a security profession is that you can't keep playing this whack-a-mole. You can't just prioritize, okay, we're focusing on patching these issues because they're high risk. At the end of the day, you're still the one owning that process. Uh, and so it just doesn't scale. The rest of the business is orders of magnitude bigger than the security organization, and they're growing even faster. Mm -hmm. And so as challenging as it sounds, actually taking a step back at first and saying, okay, what capabilities can I bring to the table that are going to allow this part of the business to own this area of security themselves? And even though that might not have been the, the top priority when I thought about it at first, if I can do that, it means I get entire sections off of my plate, and this is the only way I can really deal with scale. Now, you the, the, the art of that science then is balancing that with what are some critical blocking and tackling things that even though my team's got to take care of it, we just need to because it's just a sensible, basic security precaution. And this is why security is such a blend of art and science and technology and actual team culture and interaction is that it's not just a technical problem. The hardest problems in security are are the you know the the culture and the, the people problems and how you affect change in an organization. And so balancing that of what are my security efforts that I can bring to the organization that will allow my developers to own the security of their service, that will allow my DevOps teams to own the security of the new Im cloud infrastructure they're spinning up. And then how can I also combine that with the other block and you know block and tackling that I'm I'm I know needs to happen, even if it's not going to be an individual team that owns it beyond my own. Right. I had a conversation with someone recently, and he's a pen tester, uh, someone who's been in the pen testing industry a long time. And he said to me, I can walk into an organization and within one or two days uh, of the engagement, I know exactly how I'll hack into this organization. Is, oh, yeah. is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I remember one uh, one fun one from the pen testing days where we showed up at nine a.m. Our kickoff meeting was supposed to be at nine thirty to learn the lay of the land. Right. Uh, and we'd already gotten domain admin by nine fifteen uh, before we even went into the, the the kickoff meeting to try to explain the environment to us. And that comes um, from so what? Yeah. And that comes from what? Just kind of a, a quick look at the scope. You'll know. Okay, they're not using two-factor authentication, so I, I already have a path, or I already have my in my head. Uh, how I'll get in, or, or, or... yeah, it, it it was certainly not to say we were super geniuses or something like that. It was qu quite the opposite. It's that I think for a lot of organizations, and especially historically, um, they've really approached security in that checkbox compliance-driven model, which says, okay, well, uh, we have to have the firewall, so go buy the firewall. Okay, we have to have the IDS, so go buy the IDS. 
And you can't avoid that. That's just the reality of the. Oh, yeah, totally. And there's there's the compliance side of that, which absolutely is, you know, you got to check the boxes on the compliance side. But when that bleeds over into your actual security efforts, that's where the challenge starts to happen. Because a lot of times, for most organizations, the way defenders defend organizations is completely different from the way attackers actually attack those organizations. And this is something that I think really... But we're getting better. We're getting better at, at, at bringing defense closer to attack. I mean, this whole, again, we'll use cliches, but like think like an attacker is... is yeah. I would, I, I would wager a guess that it's, it's a critical part of every... Uh, uh, security departments thinking. Totally. And this is something I think we need to really double down on, invest on, is that, and I'm actually, uh, you know, I'd say for the industry, oddly optimistic about the future of security, which is that uh, I really think these fundamental changes that we're going through, whether it's DevOps, whether it's cloud, all of these things gives us a way to really have an inflection point on the way that we think about security. And ultimately, affords us the opportunity to actually move faster than our attackers for the first time. And so if we can combine this really thinking about uh, thinking from an attack perspective in the way that we build defensive systems and visibility and things like that, and we can combine this with the, the ability for the organization to move faster. I'm not saying every organization moves super fast, but I'm saying we are moving faster than we did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. We can start to actually have... Uh, a real advantage over our attackers in a lot of systems. Yeah, and I think this whole notion of just uh, stop focus on stopping them and just raise raise the cost, uh, increase the cost yeah. for attackers. It's like it, it's the it's a path that is going. And I actually share your your optimism. I think things are getting better than they are getting worse. At the same time, companies are continuing to be owned almost on a oh, daily yeah. basis. And and this is the thing that this is the frustrating part. It's freaking. It drives me insane. Why are we continuing to see, even from mature security departments, common mistakes that problems have been solved? These 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 mistakes that you're making should not be made, but they continue to be made. Um, we, you talk about cloud cloud deployments, just just configuring your cloud and not making a basic mistake is the reason we are seeing AWS buckets exposed every day. Uh, mm-hmm. How, uh, and I know you don't have the answer, but how, <laughs> how, how do you, how do you, how do you balance this? We are getting better. Companies are a lot more mature. People are thinking through these problems with, holy crap, those guys made that mistake. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's uh, like you said, hey, if I had the magic answer to that, this would be a, a very different conversation for sure. Um, you know, it's. On the one hand, it's tough, right? It's tough for these large organizations. It's tough to secure things you have no no knowledge of, even in the first place. That maybe that you know that cloud group you didn't even know was happening, or it was from a an acquisition that you you didn't even know was operating in the cloud there, or didn't know was operating in the data center where they made a, a similar mistake or anything like that. <clears throat> I think that um, for so much of this, and especially in in the past, so many of our security technologies, like you were just talking about a second ago, they were built on this this premise of prevention and blocking and all of that. And the problem is with those systems, we never had any visibility into what happens when they fail, right? I want to know, I want visibility across my systems to know when, okay, that one... uh, 
that one technology that I put on my endpoint, well, it turns out someone got around that and they're actually laterally moving across some key systems on, on my network, right? I, I don't want to just be deploying stacked kind of prevention systems. I want to be interweaving that with how do I get visibility into the systems that attackers are actually likely to target when they're operating against my environments. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a change in the way of thinking. It's a change in the technology. And, you know, especially at the enterprise scale, the, the ship turns slowly. And so why I'm, why I'm excited about kind of DevOps and cloud and all of these is they afford us an opportunity to change the way in, in which we're thinking and the technologies that we use. But it doesn't mean that happens overnight. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, it's pushing the ball forward, but it yeah. happens at different speeds. Uh, you'll be hacked. You'll be hacked four ways. It's 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 pretty it's it's pretty well established and understood. You'll be hacked if you're late to patch. You'll be hacked if your configurations are all messed up. You'll be hacked if security education in your organization is not up to par and people are clicking on stuff. And uh, social engineering and phishing, like these are the four basics. Even in pen tests, like these, this the, pen tests and red team, these are the four mm -hmm. ways they get in. How? How have we not gotten to a point where we are blocking and tackling on on these things, uh, uh, and we're still spending millions and millions and millions of dollars every year on security technologies, but you're still getting hacked with these four basic ways? Is it? Am I underestimating the challenge of fixing these four things? Yes and no. Um, you know, I think for a lot of these, I, I think early on, let's let's take a couple of those buckets, right? Let's let's take how the risk is has moved a lot out to endpoint and up to application, um, and let's take a look at how we've actually approached this in the past. On the endpoint side, we've we've always said, you know, look, we we're going to deploy all these security controls that at the end of the day really impact the user, whether it's from performance or they get in the way. And we've always kind of said, look, you know, it's it's it, it can either be usable or securable, but it can't be both. Um, and that's really something I, I fundamentally disagree with. I think that good security has to be usable. This is where I love the rise of companies like Duo, right, that, that focus on taking a security control that's so important, two-factor off, and really focus on making it usable by the end users so they don't want to throw out their hardware tokens the second that they see them. They're actually able to use an app on their phone or, or something like that so that they can really have an effective security control that's actually very usable. And if we look at the application layer, you know, it was always historically, hey, let's run some really super heavyweight static analysis that's going to give you 100 pages of false positives, and we expect you to dig through that and fix all the bugs. Well, the reality is there's always more bugs. And so what we need to think about is how can we give the developers on that side visibility into how people are actually attacking their systems so that they can own the security of this. I think this is all part of this broader shift of security as a heavyweight uh, control that really gets in the way, you know, we had to learn over time that actually that's not that effective. We need to focus on security controls that can actually be used not just by a security team, but can be used by the actual end users that own the security of that service themselves, whether it's developers on the application side, whether it's end users on the endpoint side. Uh, but we really need to focus on making security technologies usable by the rest of the organization. You are, uh, I don't know, you're on the board of this uh, internet bug bounty program. You've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about bug bounties and the, and, and the role of it. When is an organization uh, fully ready for a bug bounty program? And it should, should, should your bug bounty program be part of just your PR 
that okay we have mm-hmm. a bug bounty program or is there a legit place for this alongside all the other spending that you need uh, and and help, help help me think through how you think about it sure so i'm i'm sure i'll say something extra extra dumb here but uh you know with bug bounties i think there's a couple things first of all i'm going to use bug bounties as the kind of placeholder for a lot of different approaches here that yeah, might be a, it, a paid it, bug bounty bug might bounty be responsible exposure needs, uh, bug bounty itself yeah. needs a, a proper definition let's uh, exactly. let's, 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 <laughs> let's 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 uh, let's settle on crowdsource pen testing or crowdsource yeah sure uh, bug uh, finding the, Exactly. So for some orgs, that might be a responsible disclosure program. It might be Hall of Fame. It might be paid bug bounty. It might be public bounty or private bounty. Sure. But let's just, you know, I, I just want, especially listeners, to, to I, I don't want anyone to thinking, oh, I have to rush into a public paid bug bounty right away. We're actually using this as an umbrella term. Come on. Five people so, are listening to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, all five of them, it's, it's great. They're now, uh, they're, they're now happy about that, maybe. Or maybe they've, they've gotten sick of me and tuned out already. So, um, but with with bounty programs, I think they are definitely, um, they're very useful. So we lived through one at Etsy when it was super early days before any of the, the services really existed uh, around this. You managed it yourself? Yeah, we okay. did. I mean, this was before Pack One, Bug Crowd, all, all those. We just kind of, uh, as, the, as the kids would say, YOLO, and uh, <laughs> did it. Uh, by the way, no kids actually say that anymore, and I just totally dated myself. Um, but they, we, we launched that. It was really... We had a lot of lessons learned out of it, uh, but at the end of the day, it was tremendously useful. Um, and really, the most painful part for us was just the logistics, which is why I'm so excited about logistics, meaning but, triaging low-hanging fruit, or just logistics inter- resources that was needed. Yeah, inter- researcher interaction, payment, all of the kind of logistics of that side of the external logistics of the process. Right, not uh, which counting all the are, work that goes into what happens when something lands in your inbox. Yep, totally. So the the services are super useful for that. Then there's triage and everything on top of it. Um, so the the one thing that I came to there that uh, I think is uh, maybe it's a controversial point. Uh, I'm not really sure. Is that sometimes you hear bug bounty being thrown out as like a replacement for pen test? That's something I I really disagree with. Complete I think the nonsense. Yeah, I, I think the two complement each other tremendously because with your pen tests in the past. You always had to choose if you wanted your pen testers to go broad but shallow or deep and really focused on one area. And so your, your pen testers in particular can be really useful for that deep and focused uh, coverage. And then it frees you up to do you know, bounty for kind of broad and shallow. So each side, and sometimes it's the reverse of those two for your organization, but the two tend to play to each other's strengths and weaknesses really well, and they complement each other really well. So I'm, I'm actually a really big fan of the programs. Um, I think it complements pen testing, and I think that the important thing is not to rush into something here to make sure your organization is actually ready for it, whether that's a Hall of Fame or a responsible disclosure or a bug bounty. Uh, they are useful, but really the only way that you can massively mess it up is to just try to jump into it with no preparation. Right, and on the flip side, pen testing also has its limitations in that it's a single point-in-time thing at a time when code is being changed and pushed. Uh, much much faster than the old traditional pen testing days and what I what I do see and it's really interesting is a lot of companies moving to this continuous model where you're 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 almost pen testing on demand uh, yeah on a continuous basis do you see this as kind of like the natural evolution of the pen testing security assessment industry 
Oh, absolutely. Because software used to be a kind of point in time, you know, slow model, and now it's moving to a continuous model. So security has to move along with it. Uh, what are bits of security technologies or thinking that you're seeing coming down the pike that excites you? And I know you're you're an investment in Elevate Security, a company that I really think is is doing it right, changing behavior yes. rather than teaching people with crazy videos, changing security behavior, teaching people to use the tools that are available. More importantly, teaching people to report things back to your security departments. Exactly. Uh, and that's a problem that's uh, very, very difficult to solve, user education and employee education on security. Outside of that, what, what, what are some other things you're seeing, you're looking forward to paying attention to at RSA that's interesting? Yeah, so what gets me excited there in that landscape is the, the same way I would always vet vendors as a buyer uh, in the past and, and today as well, uh, which is would I, I look that? for, right. yeah, I, I look for companies that come from practitioners where they had to solve a problem in-house. There's, you know, there is no shortage of noise and vendor spam out there. There's never a shortage of vendor companies that said, oh, well, you know, this whole cybersecurity thing is hot. Let's uh, let's show up and throw some AI and ML at it. Um, you know the the folks that have uh, you know are just trying to move into a space that they think is hot. Where I really get excited and and take a look deeper at the technology is anyone who's been in the trenches, has had to solve problems for themselves, and really stepped out and has built a company and a product around that. Give me some examples. That's where I know that there's a real a real problem space. Give me some examples. Yeah, so I mean, full disclosure, these are these are ones that I believed in so much on that that I actually invested in. Yeah, Elevate, uh, Attack IQ on the kind of attack simulation side and control testing side. Uh, another one, Fleetsmith, which actually is adjacent to security, but they got so fed up with the lack of good uh, Mac IT management, which is a problem tons of us face, that they built a modern approach to that. Um, there's there's a bunch of different folks that uh, I'm actually struggling with a few that I think are still stealth, so I don't think I, I actually get to name them. Uh, but there's um, there's a number uh, of different folks. Oh, Remediant uh, as well, and kind of um, loosely like privilege access management space. Um, a bunch of different interesting folks that have all been practitioners and have had to solve problems for themselves in-house. And that's really what, from a buyer perspective, that's how I know that they've at least been in my shoes. And I know even if their solution might not work directly for my given environment, they're absolutely worth a look. Yeah, and that's what that's what the VCs are telling me as well. When I'm looking to invest in a company, it's not even sometimes the company or the approach. I'm betting on the people. I'm betting on, um, and I'm I'm looking to uh, invest into in, into practitioners who have branched out and seen a, seen a, a sweet spot somewhere. Um, if absolutely. You, if you don't mind, help me understand the thinking about uh, uh, the thinking you guys made when you co-founded the company to go the VC route versus bootstrapping it. Uh, I think there's a lot of my listeners who are budding entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs struggling with this decision of, do I take VC money, build fast, go to market, <laughs> get a, get a sales yep. team in place versus do I take it slow and try to uh, bootstrap this? What, what was your thinking when, when you guys launched Signal Sciences? Because I know you took a couple of rounds of VC funding. Yeah. So, you know, neither one of them is the the absolute right one, right? You, you kind of got to see what's right for you, given your conditions. And for anyone that's listening, if this is something that you're thinking about there, my DMs are open on Twitter. My, my email's open. I love chatting with other founders that are going through this because we had 
so many other founders that came out of the woodwork to help us early on mm -hmm. that I'd love to pay it forward with other folks. So feel free to, to drop me a line on that. I'm happy to share kind of a uh, friend DA advice on that. Um, to the question, you know, when we really sat down and looked at it, we said, look, this is something we deeply believe in. It was a problem that we had ourselves as practitioners. And we really see more and more folks going down this road that, that we saw ourselves going down. Uh, you know, the road to DevOps, the road to cloud. We really think that a bunch of people are gonna have the problems that, that we solved. And so we don't wanna take years to go build this. We really, we're gonna take the VC route because we want to be able to build and deliver quicker on that. And that was really the the decision at at the end of the day early on is that it was a you know kind of time to market. Thing. It was a speed to market thing. It was if we raise, we're going to have the resources to get to market quicker for something that we deeply believe in and that we know it's a problem that we can solve for folks. And so that really influenced our our decision making really heavily. For other, but you know, there's so many assumptions built into that statement of you know complexity to build and and all of that that depending on what your idea is and what your product is, that might not hold true for your business at all. And so you have folks like Haroon, who you know was on previously, who who didn't go the VC route, and Haroon is absolutely amazing, and Canaries are amazing, and like uh, I think he's one of the smartest people in security. I, I, I love every time I get a chance to, to talk with him. And they went a totally different route because it was completely right for their business. What's what's the downside, downside of going the VC route outside of, okay, they're just going to drive you to an exit because that's always the, they're, they're, they're going to, uh, they're going to muck up your plan. Like that, that, <laughs> that, that, that's a thinking among a lot, a lot of young entrepreneurs or, or, or startup guys. Like I, I'm never going to get to build it right because this, you know, you had a very specific speed to market approach there. There's also the downside of it being too fast help people understand the downside of going the vc route yeah i mean like anything any sort of generalization there it, it depends on the people Outside right of it, half it, of your company too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well that that certainly depends on your negotiating as well uh but you know with the indivi individual investors that's that's why you want to choose ones that you really think are are the right partner for you and the business that you're building that you know, if it's if it's a conflict from the start, then boy, those conflicts would only get worse down the line. If you if you really Is that partner with folks, you can spot during the, the the getting to know you phase. I think so. Yeah, I I think that uh, you know if if you if in the first you know hour conversation treat it like kind of a, an initial conversation about a, a job interview or something like that. Mm -hmm. These are people that you're going to be working with. Uh, if at the end of you know your first conversation you really wanted to leave that room as fast as possible, uh, that's probably not a good fit, right? But if you found yourself suddenly saying, "Oh, we went half an hour over and I didn't even notice," like, "Oh, maybe there's a, a real fit there." Um, so it's you know it's it's just like anything else in your career, finding uh, finding good people to work with, and at the end of the day, I mean. I, my philosophy has always been life's too short to work with assholes. And so that's, that's a pretty you know, easy, straightforward one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let you go with this one because we're, we're up against 40 minutes already. And I know people get, get a little, uh, uh, get sidetracked when they're listening to podcasts. Uh, what do you make of, uh, VC spending in security today? Do you think, do you think we're hitting bubble range? Do you think it's kind of right in line with, you know, just this massive security problem we have on hand and, and we need all hands on deck to solve it. It just seems to me, I was looking at some numbers recently. It just seems like 
money is being thrown at security vendors uh, uh, trying to solve problems that have already been solved, trying to recreate the wheel. It seems to me as as an uh, more or less an outsider because I don't really pay attention to the VC space. Uh, curious for your thinking on, on on how you see money being thrown around. Yeah, I mean, I I have I have one small perspective on that compared to the overall view, right? There's there's a lot of forces at work there of the capital that needs to be deployed, right? You see you see tons of capital flowing in here from kind of all sides. Yet at the same time, you see uh, from the buyer perspective, you know, from the CISO perspective, it's it's really tough to buy two new technologies because there's so much noise out there that how do you even find the good ones? So, and, and VCs recognize that as well, that look, this is a really noisy space, even though the spend in it is really significant and growing even more significantly. Um, it's not as straightforward as it seems to just, you know, make an investment in space because, you know, you're really up against not just the best technology, but people who can break through the noise at all. And so I, I think that manifests itself in a lot of ways of capital going in the, into the space, how that capital is being deployed, how startups are actually using it, how much they're raising. Uh, it's, uh, this is the, the short way of me saying, hey, that topic is actually a whole another 45 minutes, <laughs> I and I don't want to bore people to tears. <laughs> I was just going to say, I was going to sign off by saying, listen, I actually did not enjoy this podcast because I feel like we we, we kind of touched the surface of a lot of important things and we didn't really get it. I would have loved to have more time to dig into things. So with that, I'll you say, come back on. Come <laughs> back on. Maybe we can make this a recurring thing where you we can just dig in, into one thing because we can talk. We can talk. I think we can talk for two hours on this. Oh, completely agreed. Thank you so Wait. much for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, I think we've got... A bunch to deep dive into if it's uh, if it's interesting for everyone listening. We, you mentioned your DMs are open. Tell the people how to find you on Twitter and. Uh... Oh yeah, uh, I I am not creative at naming at all. So my Twitter account is Zane Lackey. Uh, no spaces, no underscores, anything like that. And I'm uh, Zane at SignalSciences.com. And where do they send you their RSA meeting invite? Um... <laughs> let's say email on that. <laughs> thank you Zane I'll see you at RSA hopefully we get to catch up at Black Hat again and have our annual kind of hangout by the pool uh, downtime exactly I'm very much looking forward to it thanks a lot thanks again Instead of blindly following industry standards, Bishop Fox works with organizations to develop tailored security programs to secure them against present and future threats. Thank you, Bishop Fox, for supporting the Security Conversations podcast.